Well, it's Tuesday. That means it's time for another true crime night. I'm here with Kendra. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Golden State Killer. It's not as fun as you think. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on Sunday. This is Sunday. about the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Oh, guns up, giddy up, wolf pack. This is Failure to Stop. This is the number one podcasting platform where we entertain and inform first responders and their friends. I'm John. I'm an active 9-1 dispatcher in the field. I'm joined by Kendra, who is a former police officer down in southern sunny Florida. Kendra, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm still feeling like the Thanksgiving blah. You There's know, like hope. a hangover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like I have no energy and I have no I have like no joy despite the fact that <laughs> I just like had an awesome holiday. I had time away. But but it's like a balloon popping, right? Like back to reality and all of a sudden you're like, oh I have ten thousand things that I have to do. And uh yes. just the sudden onset of responsibility when I'm still bloated, you know, like it is, it is not good. Uh, I have to get back into some kind of fighting shape before I can continue on. How was your Thanksgiving though? Did you have a good time? Did you do all those uh, daiquiris and make all of your, your dinner plans and all that stuff that you, you like yes. to do? Did, did you have, did you have anything interesting happen to you? No, I had a very laid back some would call boring Thanksgiving, which is the way that I like it. So I had a good Thanksgiving. What about you? I went to work and uh, domestic <laughs> violence calls always spike right before Thanksgiving. And uh, it's kind of funny because uh, that means you're sitting in jail for like four days when that happens. At, w- at one point we had a, a female call me and she was concerned about her sister who's a domestic violence victim. And she's like, if he gets out of jail today, they're going to call us. Right. And I said, it, it is Thanksgiving. Like, no, he can't. He doesn't have any bond on his charges. He is not getting out till Monday. And she was still kind of mm-hmm. concerned about it. And she goes, yeah, but, you know, well, what if he posted or whatever? Like, you don't understand. And I did this like in a in a, in a really compassionate way. I actually had the time because we weren't terribly busy. But I'm just like, the only person that can spring him from the clink is a judge. And you bet your balls that a judge is not going to come into work <laughs> until Monday. They're not going to be here today. They're not going to be here tomorrow. They're not coming on a Saturday and Sunday. So he's definitely sitting in jail for four days. And that, that helped her feel better. She got to know that, you know, she could enjoy uh, the piece of Thanksgiving without knowing this guy was going to show up. I think that took something off her plate to employ a Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> nope. Puns. There, was also, there was also somebody else who was like, my daughter, you know, lives, uh, she goes to university in a different town and she, she lost her driver's license and she's calling me and she's crying because she can't come home for Thanksgiving, you know, because she doesn't have a driver's license. She can't drive a car. And I'm just like having to explain, like, well, you know, it'll probably be okay. You know, I don't, I don't even think that you necessarily in this state have to have it in your possession. You know, we just we'll check to see if you have a license to drive, and uh, you, she can, you know, if there's doubts about that, she could just explain what happened. Uh, al- almost one in three police officers are human, and they understand that things happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they they could just give her a warning or, you know, or even, you know, written warning or something that you're supposed to have that in your possession. But I don't think that she should miss Thanksgiving dinner over it, but she should also just avoid contact with law enforcement. So you kind of, you do a weird, a, a weird amount of family fixing 
mm-hmm. over Thanksgiving. There's a lot of, of that stuff going on. Um, no fire calls. Everyone thinks that I must be dealing with people throwing uh, frozen turkeys into filled to the brim vats of boiling oil, but <laughs> really nothing like that happened. So it was a pretty easy day at work. I left early, came home and watched the Cowboys kick the shit out of the Redskins, and that made me just about as happy as I've ever been. <laughs> you know, that's all it takes for me. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we had actually had pizza that night. And then on Friday, we, we kind of did did more stuff. But we had games and uh, kind of all the the family traditional stuff. And it was very laid back and ca- nice. cabin fever at one point. And uh, we live in a town where there's nowhere to go. So it's like we just drove around for five minutes realizing that the vehicle wasn't warmed up yet. So we just went, went back home. So that was about <laughs> it. Uh, That's nice. Nothing, nothing much to that. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I had some wine, had some booze. It was it was a good year. That um, sounds like a nice time. I saw a movie the other night. Well, maybe it was last night. Was it? Yeah, it was last night. <laughs> Thanksgiving, the horror movie that just came out. Yeah. Very. It was it, really good. I know you recommended it to me, but I have to be honest with you. I saw all the trailers for it. I thought it just looked atrocious. It, uh, it like, is. Ta- the tagline being, there will be no leftovers. <laughs> like... That's the best. That's it like, just shows you we finally have made too many Halloween movies. And we're like, well, <laughs> moving on. You know, what are we scared about in November? Oh, Thanksgiving. The thing is, they should make with the same existential dread and creeping horror of any of the Halloween movies. They should have that. But it's just you going to Thanksgiving dinner and like your 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 family asking what you're doing with your life. You know, and you have nothing to report since <laughs> last year. It's just rough. Day. It's just raw footage of people just at their Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah, That's like crazy. like your your liberal aunt and like someone like like some little kid sneezing in like this the stuffing or something. You know, just just a bad time. And then <laughs> I think the I think Thanksgiving though is what helped me realize I was an adult though because I can remember going to Thanksgivings in my early twenties. I realized that I was actually like much happier like not attending these functions. It's like yeah, I'm on my own. I'm like I'm not not really a part of my family anymore i just i would prefer to do my own thing i think that's for me it was a turning point so now i've been able to kind of turn back and i can have some limited engagement with my family yeah that's kind of part of the uh a lot of people experience that at the holidays which is why all of us are in a funk i think because it's like oh my god even if you have a good relationship with your family sometimes you spend a little too much time with them you're like i'll see you at christmas (laughs) because Yeah. No, no, it's amazing. You love them, but then you're like, ah, they leave tomorrow. <laughs> it, feel, it feels good. Uh, when we were out driving around a little small town, it was one thing I noticed was that there's a small bar here, very, very small, and it was packed to the brim. So <laughs> I, think I think that's another way people get out of uh, celebrating with their family. They say, I'm going to, I forgot something at the office, and then just go to the little, little bar downtown. Um, <laughs> Good to catch up with you. I know it's it's hard because you know we obviously we used to celebrate Thanksgiving together as a family, and now we're just we're just uh, podcasters, co-podcasters, uh, compelled to do this uh, by civil a lot statute. Of painful memories. Yeah, a lot of a lot of painful memories, which helps you know helps us talk about uh, the pain caused by uh, the Golden State Killer through a, an important lens, <laughs> knowing that you know what happened to you and me maybe, maybe wasn't so bad. We, we definitely weren't married for 10 years. So that helps. Uh, 10 years was the <laughs> 10 plus years was the span of crimes committed by the golden state uh, killer. I don't know if you want to kick it off and then I'll rudely interrupt you as I think of interesting things to say. 
Yeah, this um this case has a lot to it. So we're we're not gonna do well, maybe we will, who knows? I don't think we're gonna do a two-hour episode, and we're not gonna do multiple parts. So there are this is kind of a popular case now that he's been, you know, the case has been resolved recently, but um there's so there's a lot of information about it. So if you listen to it and you hear something on another podcast or a documentary and we don't cover it, it's because it's just too freaking much, to be honest with you. So <laughs> we're just going to go through like a kind of an overview of who he was, um, his his crimes and his ultimate apprehension. So, yeah, case in point, he, he's accused now of at least 13 murders, 51 mm-hmm. rapes, 120 yes. burglaries and an attempted kidnapping. So we could take a 10,000 foot view of Joseph James D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, and tell you how he started and how he changed and some incidents that kind of changed his course and maybe why. Uh, But, you know, when you you watch things or try to to take in other resources about this, none of them go into detail, partially because, you know, rape shield laws prevent the disclosure of certain people and certain people are not willing to talk to the media. So there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of the stuff that has to go on with deal with his victims is all sort of legally confidential like we just don't know right exactly well joseph james d'angelo he was born in new york the family moved swiftly to california uh where he grew up his father was uh, an airman he was an airman as a part of the uh, the air force uh horror <laughs> <Yeah>. hall of fame <laughs> here we are again um he doesn't really talk a lot about his childhood other than his dad was kind of abusive. I mean, it's the typical um, combination of things. People that knew him would say that he witnessed his sister get raped by two airmen in a warehouse. And that was something that contributed to his later crimes and everything like that. But he doesn't confirm that himself. So who knows? Um, Through his teenage years, he is kind of an oddball. He starts doing that again. He's a voyeur. He's doing weird shit with animals and just the typical progression of these types. A lot of experts say that voyeurism is the first step in these types of people where it just progresses from peeping Tom to inevitable break-ins and then rapes, sometimes murders, um, which is basically the path that Joseph took as he was progressing and getting older <coughs> excuse me ignore kendra so he was escalating <laughs> as he went um you know the a lot of these cases start out as she said voyeurs peeping toms a lot of times they're testing the waters they're pushing boundaries they're seeing what they can get over mm-hmm. get away with uh they're uh fulfilling their fantasies of uh you know being part of other people's private lives uh, interfering with them uh victimizing them I think that was definitely the case uh, with the Golden State Killer. But we have to kind of backtrack. We have to realize that part of the reason why he wasn't caught was because he was committing his crimes in the 70s and 80s. It was a time when uh, DNA was not being used yet. Also, you had he was committing crimes, I believe, in as many as 15 jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So he's he's all over the place. These these jurisdictions aren't necessarily talking to each other. But what's linking them together is a common mo modus operandi how he he commits his crime so we'll start kind of in the middle of his three-part spree because we don't know about the third part really until after he's identified um, through dna so 
it started in Sacramento. He would uh, come into a house in the middle of the night. Initially started with uh, houses where it was just single females there. Sometimes they had family, but that is to say that there's no male companion there. He would make entry either through uh, an unlocked window door. Sometimes he would smash a, a window pane and come inside. Wearing a ski mask, carrying a gun, carrying a knife. In most cases, he would come inside also with a flashlight. He would shine it into the, the eyes of the victim or victims. Wake them up. And uh, as he progressed and there were men in the household, he actually did this uh, very similar to the way that uh, Zodiac did it when he had his uh, his killings at Lake Berryessa. That is to say, he comes across a man and a woman. He has the female uh, tie up the man to neutralize him right away. And then uh, he would neutralize the female by tying her up, binding her, and then re-securing the man. Because, you know, of course, usually the women would not uh, secure the men very tightly so that they would have a fighting chance. And uh, also like like BTK, he would say, you know, I'm just here for I'm just here for money. I'm just here to rob you. And the reason for the for them doing that psychologically is is that there's nothing in your house. There's nothing that you have that you're going to worth. You're going to risk spending your life over. Right. You're like, I'm not going to stand up and fight this guy because all he wants is money. Like he'll take what he wants and he'll leaves. Unfortunately, that's not what he wants. Uh, he would get the mail. And the female secured, he would separate the female, usually under some kind of pretense, like, I need you to help me find your purse or show me where the goods are at. So he would take her to a separate location. Then he would return to the man. And this was something that was it was interesting. He, uh, he would place plates or dishes on their back. Um, you know, think about it, a large plate and then maybe a saucer and a glass. And he would tell them, you know, if you move, this is going to tip over and I'm going to hear it. And I'm... I'm going to kill her and I'm going to come back and kill you. Obviously the amount of time that it would take them to struggle, knock over the plates. They're not going to get other bindings. You know, he's going to have plenty of time to react to that. So he's got kind of an early warning system of any kind of resistance. So he would uh, get them secured. And then there was an intermediate step that was actually present in all of the cases. And this is something I didn't necessarily put together until I was listening to, uh, podcast uh, with the head FBI profiler, Julia Cowley in it. And she said, this is something so interesting. She says, there's no case where he didn't go and ransack the place first. Meaning he gets up, he goes through the things, opens cupboards, opens the fridge, eats food, drinks uh, their Pepsi. And then once he's done with that, once he's done satiating his need to violate their physical space, that's when he would return back to the females and he would uh, engage in rape. Uh, which was yes. truly horrible. But uh, the last part of it that I also thought that she was, that was interesting that she had to say about it. Obviously the FBI profiler wasn't how he was caught at all. He wasn't caught with the profile, but uh, is that the males were made into victims too, by way of their powerlessness. I mean, can you imagine being a man and thinking it's your job to protect your wife and to protect your house and to protect your kids in the cases were present and you have to lay there and not move for fear of aggravating the situation and getting her killed. So, uh, that wasn't just to keep them neutralized or whatever. The whole act of, of making them powerless to stop the rape um, was all part of it. Because, you know, as he would uh, eventually graduate to killing, he could have just killed the male half of uh, the occupants of the house and then raped the female half. But he wanted them alive. He wanted them powerless while that was going on. Um, and in fact, uh, a lot of his victims said that he was only violent when he was meeting with any kind of resistance. So he very much enjoyed taking that power and control away from Kendra.
Yeah, his um, his main source of pleasure from these attacks were the psychological control that he had over his victims. And he would do things like put the plates on um, the husband's backs and he would kind of leave and the, vi the victims would wait for a while and then they would start as soon as they started to move because they thought he'd gone he'd be right back in their face like he would wait around the corner and see how long it would take um, for them to try to escape and then he would he would let them think that there was hope and then take it right back and that was just something that he really <clears throat> he really enjoyed doing um, probably a lot more so than the actual raping um, or the murder but something that um, a lot of his victims, some of his victims said that he would do as well is while he was raping them or afterwards, <clears throat> he would, <laughs> he would, um, he would call out to his mom or say, I hate you, Bonnie. And Bonnie is uh, one of his love interests, essentially. It was the first woman that he really had a connection with and he wanted to marry her. Um, they were kind of backtracking here. They were college sweethearts and it was going well for a while. They were engaged, but Bonnie broke it off because she was noticing that his behavior was very reckless and he would put her in these dangerous positions. He was violent towards animals um, and she didn't like that. So she called off the engagement. Well, one night, Joseph showed up at her home uh, with a gun, pointed it at her head and said, you will get dressed. We're going to Reno. We're going to get married tonight. Luckily, Bonnie's dad was able to step in between them and, and get Joseph to leave. But that just kind of shows like his, his need for control. <clears throat> and some people think that that, that loss of control really kind of like sparked this rampage in him. I don't know if that's entirely true. I'm sure it contributed to it because he was doing stuff prior, but it, it tracks kind of also with his modus operandi too. Mm -hmm. There was, there's a couple cases. He was initially very active in the Sacramento area to the point where, I mean, you know, some 34 rapes had occurred. And this, so it's getting to the point where this is happening, you know, twice monthly, uh, like a very, very frequent event. And, um, of course, it was changing the town of, of Sacramento. But as he waited, made his way south to Stockton and to some other places, particularly Santa Barbara, um, he had a couple cases down there where he lost control of those incidents. I'm not sure the timeline of this, but there was one instance where uh, one of his victims was very violently fighting back. They weren't cooperating with that. They weren't going in for the whole uh, just here to rob you. And they offered uh, confrontation, violent resistance. And he put a nail file in their eye. Um, that was, you know, one case where he was he was frustrated by his inability to control them, and you know he acted out violently. There was uh, another case, I believe it was in uh, Santa Barbara. Like I said, that's kind of where later in his in his spree, once he kind of turns into the Bay Area uh, rapist, uh, he starts losing control. He has one instance where he goes to a house, and uh, he ties up the male. And then the female, and then he's moving the female, and the female is able to scramble and get away. And the male is able to get up and run outside. Um, the male runs outside out the back door and is calling for police. So neighbors hear this. They're fully aware of, you know, not only just someone screaming bloody murder for help, 
but also, you know, they, they may have been indicated, you know, that this was an, another one of these rape incidents. So a, a patrolman there in Santa Barbara got to got there pretty quickly, sees the female half. She's outside. She's bound up, you know, uh, even to her ankles. She's naked outside. He secures her in the car. Well, in this particular dwelling uh, where the man and the woman were were at when he broke in, it was being rented. Their landlord was an FBI agent, which has to just be the luckiest <laughs> thing in the world. So this patrolman happens to be very close by to the point where he sees a female still outside the house. Um, the FBI agent and, and the, the patrolman clear the house. He's not inside. Uh, someone's able to see that the suspect takes off on a bicycle. And so the FBI agent gives pursuit because the Santa Barbara police officer has the female victim in the back. You don't want to generally get into pursuit if you've got a victim back there. Unfortunately, even though he was on a bicycle and the FBI agent presumably had a car, uh, the uh, the killer was able to make his getaway. He ditched his bike, lost his knife, and he kind of made his way back through the woods. This was someone who had a very good understanding of the physical layout of neighborhoods. Uh, he knew exactly where to go and where to, where to uh, get off sort of the roads and make his way back through neighborhoods. There was even at one point I was uh, researching this and he would he would stash things that he needed, whether it was uh, pre-cut lengths of rope or whatever. And he would even do this inside people's houses where if he had made entry while he was stalking them, scoping the places out, he would he would put tools and things like that that he needed inside the house to have it ready. So once he broke in, you know, he would he would have something there that he knew where it was, whether that was a, a weapon or whatever. And so he was sort of meticulous in his planning. And, uh, you know, I think that that shows in, in that particular case that when as soon as it, it's not going according to plan, he just runs away. Yeah. Um, there was another case, too, where uh, he broke into a house, a man and a woman, and the, the guy was a very light sleeper. And the guy uh, was aware that there was someone in his room putting putting on the ski mask. And so he stands up and confronts him right away and says, you know, what the hell are you doing in my house? You need to get the hell out of here. And, this, and you know, D'Angelo was just sitting there, like, blinking at him like he wasn't <laughs> ready for that. Um, I think I think he had to, had to do a lot of meticulous planning because... Uh, and the, the gun and the knife certainly and the, the bindings were evident that he didn't I don't think he had the confidence himself to go toe to toe to fight with anybody. Um, BTK would do that. BTK, you know, f fought a few people and won. Uh, you know, we remember Kevin who <laughs> valiantly fought against BTK. But this is someone who really, really doesn't want to fight. Uh, so you think maybe, you know, he's, he's maybe not especially strong. Or something like that, but I think it actually just has a lot to do with his confidence level because mm -hmm. and, you know this guy just outpedaled an FBI agent on a bike. Um, he is able to physically dominate people. Um, a lot of that's through intimidation, through his manner. You know, he's you know, growling at people, screaming at people, using a lot of obscenities, <laughs> a lot of a lot of projecting an air of power. But I, yes. I think phys physically, I don't think it's possible that that he had that that ability to control people, Kendra. Yeah, one of the. <clears throat> One of the big issues with this case um, was throughout all of the, like you said, 13 murders, 50 plus rapes, 120 plus break-ins, <clears throat> the victims all gave differing descriptions. I'm sure it was difficult because a lot of them, they were being woken up in the middle of the night in their home. He's wearing a ski mask. I mean, you're not going to get a lot of description out of, out of, uh, out of that. He also wore gloves. He was very meticulous, as you said. Part of the reason why um, I think that is is because he was a police officer. 
He was an active law enforcement officer while he was committing a lot of these crimes. And he knew how to essentially take the tactics he learned and apply them to his crimes, like mapping out neighborhoods, um, knowing when and when not to fight with somebody. Um, I don't, I don't want to give him too much credit and say that he was smart enough to understand, like to cut his losses. I mean, I'm not sure. I think like, I agree with you. I think that he had self-confidence issues. One of the, <laughs> one of the descriptions that a lot of his rape victims gave to detectives was that he had a very small penis. And, um, I just think, you know, it's impressive that he only had half a dick and he was committing these crimes. <laughs> That's a nice callback. Uh, hor horrifying to anyone who doesn't understand that you're doing a callback. <laughs> to a yes, I am referencing um, something else. I'm, I'm <laughs> just to clarify that. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to like do the pop psychology Freudian mm -hmm. thing, but like, you know, not, not feeling adequate, you know, below the belt. Is, mm -hmm. is, they say that's what drove Jack the Ripper to do what he did too. You know, he was obviously a sexual, a serious, a serious sexual sadist and murderer. Um, you know, I think he had bigger and broader issues than the Golden State Killer. But so he's committing a lot of rapes. He's taking a lot of joy and a lot of power. He's stealing things from people. Um, he'll take one of a set of earrings. He'll take uh, gold rings, things like that. But also food, um, just things from around the house. He really just enjoys the act of pilfering, of just taking. Uh, because yes. for him, you know, that that's maybe a, a, a trophy of his control or the fact that he was there. Um, sometimes they would find these things, you know, littered down the street later. I think that he just enjoyed having them and that enjoyed, he enjoyed the fact that he could take them. It wasn't about material gain for him. So you shouldn't, con you shouldn't confuse these as being robbery rapes. So he would take the things right. because that gave him a certain amount of joy, but it was never about material gain. I think that the thing that he stole that pr probably had the highest dollar value at one point, and I'll, and I'll get to this, was a firearm which you would think being a police officer, being in a possession of a stolen firearm or using that uh, would be a problem, but it, it was eventually uh, used in a, in a killing. Uh, and so, you, you know, you'd think we don't have DNA technology, but we certainly have certain ballistics things that have gone back, you know, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that are, you know, fairly robust in terms of their ability to, to investigate things but he had one of those and he took it because he had maybe a fascination with guns he was certainly proficient with guns as we would come to find out after he goes down south you know and he has these uh instances in santa barbara that's when he uh there's different theories on it because they say in some sense he was he might have been sabotaging himself that he wanted to kill all along but he, he wasn't provoked to it you know uh to be moved to that point you you have to have something that pushes you over that line and, and maybe self-preservation stopping himself from being caught protecting himself from danger was that line but uh eventually uh, there was one case where he was uh raping someone and someone offered some kind of resistance and so that's when he started killing he fired several rounds into a, a man who was partially bound attempting to charge him maybe to scare him off he shot this person several times the guy was still still up sort of offering some kind of resistance till eventually he went down with a with a bad gunshot wound and then um golden state killer this guy uh d'angelo uh shot him in the back of the head and then he went and shot the female without even raping her so again he had this perfect opportunity where he could have raped the female if that was really what it was about was rape mm -hmm. but uh, you know for him he had committed his first murder 
that we know of, or at least in this context, he had finally escalated to murder. And then, you know, he murdered her as well. He didn't go through with the rape. Um, certainly could possibly discuss their aggravation or uh, frustration about losing control, uh, just trying to avoid capture. But he would eventually move on away from the guns and he moved on to other things uh, as he became more sophisticated and more thoughtful. He moved on to bludgeoning, which I thought was interesting because if you want to kill someone, you don't want the sound of the, of the gunshot. You don't want the attention that that draws. It seems to me you could go the BTK route where strangling is really more your thing. Certainly, you know, if they're already bound up and they're not offering physical resistance, putting a bag over the head, strangling them manually or with ligature, that's a very quiet way to do it. But I don't think it's very satisfying to someone who's as angry as this guy is. So you would also say, well, why not stabbing? Stabbing uh, is very messy. I think as a police officer, he'd probably seen a lot of stabbings. Um, and so he knew that that was a good way to just get blood all over you and track it all over the place. Mm -hmm. And if he's, if he's, if he's leaving the scene and he's walking through a neighborhood, you know, he's not hopping in a car that's parked outside, that's going to leave a trail of blood. So bludgeoning is also very bloody, but yeah. the thing that he was doing that was different in these cases uh, is that he would take the victims, man and woman, eventually have them lie down in bed, cover them up to sort of, you know, uh, dampen the blowback of the blood and uh, there was one case in particular where um, he had a woman and, and a man lie down in the bed and he beat them with a, a piece of wood, like a fire a fireplace log that he found in the backyard. And he just went apeshit on him and beat them to death so badly, you know, that they, they, you know, they had to have closed caskets. And so this is someone who it's very personal, but, or excuse me, it's not personal, or if it is, it's only in his head because it's about this Bonnie person or whoever he's mad about, but he definitely has just a lot of rage. And he's taking it out. And for him, the only way he can get that catharsis is by victimizing them as much as possible and by being as violent as possible. And yeah. he had reached the point where he had sort of perfected his craft. But um, yeah, you can you can see the progression um, if you take a, a deep dive on all these cases. Um, when he was up in in northern California, um, he started just doing break ins. Um, and as we said earlier, he was a voyeur, but. He started escalating from the break-ins and then into raping, but he stuck with, um, like you were saying, single women, women, people that he knew he could easily um, overcome. The first couple of his victims were um, minors, which is pretty typical of, of people like this because they're kind of testing the waters of what they can get away with. It's almost like a training field is the way that it was put in a documentary that yeah. I watched, which is really gross. Let, um, let's go back and, and talk about the beginnings, though, because I think that's interesting because you, you mentioned uh, the minor and mm -hmm. uh, the attempted kidnapping prior to that. Yes. Th yes. There was a, the whole case of the Vidalia ransacker. This is mm -hmm. someone who was uh, breaking in. He would go through uh, the drawers and the uh, female undergarments. And in one case, he even like deconstructed a bra, took it apart, pulled out the underwire and the cups and all this. And he was very interested in touching it, playing with it, uh, destroying it. He would take pictures from albums of the victims. Um, I think for him, you know, he did fixate on people. I don't know if he like stalked them necessarily beforehand. Like BTK did the, his, uh, his thoroughness and his crime certainly suggests that he did do that. But one thing that was interesting when I was listening to this FBI profiler, 
she says, you know, if you have a, a case that's unsolved and you're looking at Joseph James D'Angelo for this, one thing that's absolutely critical is the ransacking. If you have almost identical, otherwise rapes, murders, everything else matching his MO, but you don't have that, it's not him. Um, he would break into these houses, like I said, over 120 of them, unless, you know, you're, you're detracting 120 from also the 51 rapes that were also incident to yeah. burglaries and the 13 murders, you know, which were also part of that. But it could be 120 total burglaries. He would break in there, ransack the place, and then, um, you know, he would he would take these things. It was very interesting the way that this was described, almost in that these were sexual burglaries. Um I think that's that's easy to see since considering his fascination with the things that he would ransack and the things that he was involved with. So he's involved in all these sexual sexually themed burglaries that aren't about gaining material wealth or finding, you know, TVs to hawk or anything like that. It's about uh, victimizing and taking control of these women. And so you could see where he goes from all these burglaries to when he starts going into Sacramento and starts raping that that's part of a, a pattern of escalation there wasn't a particular incident that happened in the middle though uh between uh straight burglaries and then rapes is that there was at one point he had attempted a kidnapping of a 16 year old girl um i'm not sure exactly how that went down uh, but the girl's father got involved and he killed the father stopped him from intervening at that point he took off cut his losses kind of what you said he had lost control of that incident we don't really know what his plans were you know, if he had successfully abducted that girl where he would have taken her, you know, how that would have went down or what, how that would have fit into the grand scheme of things, because he never attempted another kidnapping again, so mm -hmm. far as we know. Um, the interesting thing about us knowing about the kidnapping is he's a, he's in prison uh, for the murders, but he actually couldn't be charged with any of the rapes prior to 2017, which means all of them. But as part of his plea deal, he had to, uh, you know, elocute to the his guilt in these rapes which was uh, a very good move by the prosecutor you know to get closure on those cases and you know to get him to be held to account for what he did i'm not sure what happened in 2017 where the statute changed in california where he couldn't be prosecuted for anything before that because i'm pretty sure the statute of limitations on rape is a lot longer than one year yeah i i don't know what i know for Florida, there's no statute of limitations if the assault or if the rape occurred um, as a minor. Like if, if you're a victim and you're under 18 and, and you're raped, there is no statute of limitations. But there is one if you're an adult. Um, I don't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, I want to say it's like it's under 10 years, I, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know what what the actual switch was in 2017. I I'm assuming that they probably capped, they probably capped the statute of limitations. So the time had already passed and they, they couldn't get them on it, which is it crazy. Matter because, anyway, if it yeah. was, if suppose it was 10 years or suppose it was 25 years. If his last instance was in 1986 by mm -hmm. 2017, we're past any statute of limitations on that anyway. Right. Right. So yeah, I'm not really sure what, maybe there wasn't, Oh, statute of limitations at all. And then they put Maybe. one on it. Um, that I can I'm imagine sure. a big state like California would just have to at a certain point. Otherwise, they'll never get anything done. They'll be litigating. Everything will be pending litigation yeah. because they just have a backlog of so many cases. That's the thing about statute of limitations. It's not about like 
setting some kind of pressuring limit or deadline on law enforcement, like, hey, you really need to get this done in 10 years, <laughs> has to do with just practically managing the criminal justice system. That at some point yeah. we have to say, you know, we can't we can't adjudicate this because and it's unfortunate because this case actually case actually brings to light like how much you can do with DNA, which is something that we're going to get into about how we got caught shortly. Um, certainly, it's you know it's a crime where where DNA is almost always going to be involved, especially back in the day when we weren't using protection like we were before the AIDS scare, and um, it, it's too bad because there's probably a lot of rape cases that we could successfully prosecute now with with DNA, but the statute of limitations yeah. is there. Um, so he had committed these rapes, committed these murders. He was doing it less and less frequently. Mm -hmm. um, his last, his last instance was in 1986 when uh, the first case was successfully tried and won based on DNA. Uh, a lot of people think that he was actually watching that and decided like, well, I have left my DNA all over California, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> basically for the last 12 years, and this is going to catch up with me at some point, but he made a mistake. And that mistake was he thought that his DNA would be like a fingerprint. Obviously, you can only identify someone through fingerprints. If you have their fingerprint on file and you have the person, you know, you actually have a, you have the fingers attached to that print. You can do a one-to-one -one comparison. Yeah. DNA doesn't work like that. Um, this is a guy that has until he was uh, until after he was arrested and charged with all this he had a wife and he had three children well what's interesting about this and this is kind of where we'll get into the politics of this because this this has caused this whole case and dna has caused a, a rapid shift and a huge shift in the way that we investigate crime when they announced that it was joseph james d'angelo uh, there was one of the one of the speakers who got up was a brother of one of the victims, and he basically shamed California as a whole, and he shamed California certain lawmakers for restricting development of a California DNA database, which would have been similar to the United States's combined DNA index system or CODIS. Um, he wanted California to maintain a database uh, of the DNA of certain persons whether they were arrested for felonies or convicted of felonies and it was amazing because back when all of this was happening with the rise of dna as a private industry there was tons of certainty that they were going to catch this guy based on this um, and the reason for that is so when someone uses 23andme or ancestry.com it goes into a, a, a bigger database than what CODIS is. It's a more sophisticated database. They use more points of comparison. CODIS is about all ad identifying people. When you use Ancestry.com, when you use 23andMe, it has more to do with who are your family members, mm -hmm. right? So it's more, you're casting a wider net saying, who are the people you're related to? Who are things you, who are the people that you have things in common with? Who are the people that you have a certain amount of repeating uh, nucleotides that say, hey, you probably share a common ancestry? When I was investigating this or watching documentaries of that council's investigation, I find that, you know, every person a day has about 175 third cousins uh, that you just don't know about. You're not friends with, but they're your family nonetheless. And so if one of these 175 people who are near you or around you or in this country somewhere, if one of them uh, commits a crime or they do this 23andMe, Ancestry.com, uh, database, their, their DNA goes into that, 
uh, all of a sudden there's some kind of record keeping system that knows they're related to you because they have put in all their biographical data saying this is who I am, these are who my parents are. And so you could take a look at that and you could say, well, you, ha you have some DNA in common with a third cousin uh, who we found his semen at a rape scene. Now it's a matter of time, right? Now we just have to go down to uh, the register of deeds and see who your parents are married to and uh, you know who their brothers and sisters are married to and who their children are and who their parents are or whatever. And it's almost like we create a little forensic family tree. And that's mm -hmm. actually how they ended up catching this guy, Kendra. Yeah. So like you were saying, Janelle Cruz was the, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, Janelle Cruz was the last known victim of Joseph D'Angelo in 1986. Um, and he was quiet, I think about five years prior to that. He, he got fired from his law enforcement job in 1979. He was, he was a law enforcement officer with two different agencies between the years of 73 and 79. Um, he was fired for shoplifting. He was arrested for shoplifting and they fired him for it, obviously. Well, of course. That was another form um, of ransacking. Yeah. Yes. And during the year of 19, between 1979 and 1980, he kind of like really ramped up, um, I guess with his intensity and then he just kind of dropped off the face of the earth for five years. And I, and the theory is like you said, he probably saw the writing on the wall because DNA was becoming a thing and he didn't want to get caught. Um, he, I think he became a trucker or something like that. He's just, also just, just got to be getting older. He was born in 45. Yes. So by yes. the time, you know, the eighties are coming around, he's moving in, into later life. He's moving from his thirties into his forties. Yes. And um, that was another thing that was brought up when I was um, investigating this as well, <laughs> that his victims, he liked to stick to younger people. He liked to um, assault and murder couples. That was part of his escalation from, you know, like the thrill of the single woman raping her and leaving. Um, he liked to, do the couple thing, I think, like we touched on earlier in the episode, because he liked to have that psychological control and maybe he felt like he was acting out some sort of um, vindication for himself because he felt insecure and powerless himself. But anyway, I digress. So in 1980, he falls off the map for a few years. 1986, he, he murders and bludgeons Janelle Cruz. And then nothing for a really long time. And um, I believe there was something that uh, some sort of development happened in 2001 that helped them um, basically pinpoint. They, yeah. They, they, they had taken the DNA uh, yes. from the Vidalia ransacker because some DNA was left behind there. They took DNA from the East side, the East side rapist. And they took uh, DNA from this uh, this character they were calling the original Night Stalker. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they called him the original Night Stalker because, of course, Richard Ramirez was the Night Stalker uh, that came along later. And he kind of got the moniker Night Stalker. And so yeah. it's kind of funny. We're talking about how the BTK killer wants to he wants his own nickname and he comes up with that himself. You can't really fault the guy when the media can't. They're just recycling. <laughs> they're like, oh, this is some Night Stalking guy. You know, so this is so now it's like it's like a famous Rays pizza in New York. You got famous Rays and you got the original famous Rays. Now, so 
you got the original Night Stalker. So this is pre-Richard <laughs> OG Night Stalker. And so in 2001, they uh, they had put out all these DNAs into CODIS, I believe. And then they're like, mm-hmm. they all of a sudden they get a hit and like, oh, just so you know, they're these all are all the same guy. So yes. you have these you have these some 15 some jurisdictions, whether it was Contra Costa County or Santa Barbara or Stockton, you know, all of a sudden all these agencies that had never really communicated before throughout the 70s and 80s, all of a sudden they're told like, oh, uh, this is not three smaller, terrible sprees of various different things. This is all one guy who's probably one, one of our most prolific criminals in American history. He's been doing all these things all these times and we've never put it all together. Yeah. Which is part of it's, you know, a testament to his inability to get caught, his inability to be identified by anyone. But the DNA put it together all in 2001. And yes. uh, so he was known by all of these and several other nicknames until uh, a woman named Michelle McNamara, who was kind of a she was kind of an armchair sleuth, started writing a book about it and, and getting a lot of information together. And she realized that he was really the killer of California. He was the Golden State Killer. So she's the one that kind of gave him the the nickname Golden State Killer. She ended up dying uh, of an overdose just a couple years before he was identified, which was too bad. She's also mm-hmm. the, the first wife of comedian Patton Oswald. So there's quite a few documentaries out there about it. But if you wanted to read her book, it would probably be a good idea. It's called um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. And of course, it's really sad because she was very passionate about identifying him. And she passed away just two years before they finally figured out who it was. But that's what happened in 2001 is that they figured Mm -hmm. out it was one guy. Yeah. One thing I just want to touch on real quick that I I wanted to say when I was watching when I was watching the documentary, one of the documentaries, um, they were talking about how Michelle was so um, they use the word passionate, but she was obsessed with the case and she wanted to. maybe not solve it, but at least contribute to identifying this person. And it ultimately, her friends kind of attribute that to her ultimate demise because she was overloading her plate with this case. And um, she started self-medicating and and unfortunately it, it led to her um, passing away. And they, they, say that she's his last victim because he consumed her life, um, which is an interesting perspective. And it made me think about it. Um, this is kind of something that you see with some journalists with these cases. Um, one in particular stands out, a guy who wrote a book um, about John Wayne Gacy because he became his pen pal for a college project. And him and John Wayne Gacy actually became well, in this guy's mind, they were very close. And he, John Wayne Gacy, was doing his uh, mind games that he was very good at. And ultimately, it led to this this college kid committing suicide. So it's just interesting um, to me when I see that. It's like, it just goes to show the control and the psychological terror that these people are capable of which it's it's not unique to this case either if you want to read the book or watch the movie zodiac so there's this Mm -hmm. guy that you know the zodiac killings in in california 
you watch the movie and you think that you're watching, you know, an investigative story about trying to identify this bizarre killer and his ciphers and all that. But what you're actually watching is is a movie about three people whose lives are ultimately destroyed by the Zodiac. You have Robert Graysmith, the author of the books, whose family falls apart because he absolutely cannot let the case go. Paul Avery, who is a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, who uh, gets a career boost out of it. He seems to be trying to help solve the case while also increasing his circulation. It kind of leads to him uh, having an opinion of himself that he, and uh, combined with his alcoholism isn't good for his career. It ultimately destroys his career and, and his life. And Inspector Dave Toski, who was basically at one point uh, was in line to become the chief of the San Francisco Police Department, but because of all the his inability to solve the case and some of the scandals that came out about uh, letters that he was purported to have written to himself, praising himself as a detective, which he was later exonerated of that. It was a black enough mark on his career that he wasn't able to do that. So that, that whole movie and that whole book is really about how the Zodiac consumed lives of three people who were interested in the case. So I don't yeah. think that that's unusual at all. I think it's mm-hmm. possible that when you have a case that's provocative and unsolved like this, it really can consume an entire person. I don't know if Michelle McNamara is one of those. Um, I know that, you know, overdosing on Adderall and fentanyl. And they did mention she had a heart defect, but she was only 46, you know, Mm -hmm. and she, she had written a whole book about it, which is not easy, but I could see why they would say that that was something that consumed her as well. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, I just wanted to make a note of that because I thought it was, it was something that stood out to me when I was watching the documentary, but uh, like you said, a short few, a short year, a few short years later, (laughs) um, they would, use this um, genealogy like the ancestry.com and things like that to catch and identify Joseph D'Angelo a medical examiner in one of the rape cases uh, well rape and murder cases he made duplicates of the samples that he collected which was apparently pretty unusual um, but the, one of the samples remained pristine and untouched for like 38 years or something like that. Hmm. And this is the sample that they use to ultimately identify Joseph D'Angelo as the original Night Stalker, the East Area Rapist. It's all the same Golden State Killer person. Um, it's a little bit complicated and I'm not very versed on how they narrow down uh the family members, like you said, everybody's got like a hundred and something third cousins. And essentially what they did was they, <laughs> they made a profile and then they submitted this DNA sample that was collected from this uh, medical examiner. They send that in and they're able to match the DNA to a, a large number of people. Just to be clear, they're, they're sort of backdooring their way into 23andMe, mm-hmm. right? So they already have this DNA that's a part of CODIS. It's not showing them anyway. But they're taking samples from Joseph mm-hmm. D'Angelo that they've had for 38 years, and they're submitting it to 23andMe like this is an actual subscriber, someone that wants to find uh, their family members. So yes, as a police officer, what's the ethics of that? Do you have a problem with that or... They, I mean, because they sort of game gamed the system. Twenty three and Me and Ancestry dot com, they don't they don't work with law enforcement. They say they say you know if you do this, if you participate in this, because you want to learn more about your heritage, you're not entering into a DNA database that's being used by law enforcement. 
they give you all these reassurances that that's not going to happen. I can tell you right now that if you give them a piece of DNA, a piece of evidence, and they have a and a police officer gets a warrant, they can compel Ancestry dot yeah. com or twenty three me to turn it turn over that evidence. It's just like everything that went on with that iPhone where Apple wasn't going to unlock it for them, and so they had to go through all these warrants and everything to, you know, that Fourth Amendment says you're secure in your papers and your in your effects, which covers a cell phone covers yeah. your dna so this is a way of them of them entering entering the dna database system as though they're a customer wanting to find out their their the heritage of this guy when they're really they're mm-hmm. entering a suspect's dna what do you think about that and should that be allowed or would you have done the same thing or what do you think well i i don't know i think this was re- this was like a new technique in fact i think joseph d'angelo was like the first person to be identified using this method since then other cases have been solved that way so it's kind of murky waters because it was unpre it was like the first time that they'd ever really done that um i would say because the dna was already in their possession as evidence the worst thing that they did if you're looking at it from an ethics point of view is they lied about who they were um to get this information. They, they said they were, they presented themselves as this, as an individual that they weren't. I think if they illegally obtained the DNA and did it that way, that would be a problem. That would be the issue that I would have. Um, and I think it's just because there's no real rules about it at this point. So there's nothing to tell them that they can't do it. I think it's a little murky, but well, the other thing is, you know, you know the, these company policies saying, you know, you're, we're not a law enforcement database. We're not going to mm-hmm. we don't cooperate actively. These are just company policies. If they want to avoid their own policy, I mean, it would make maybe make them liable for a lawsuit, you know, violating agreed upon terms of use or something. But, you know, uh, how is that going to come out? Well, it's going to come out because yeah. some, someone's been identified criminally and they're going to be charged with something. And all of a sudden, you know, someone like Joseph D'Angelo all of a sudden has something way way worse to worry about, you know, their rapes and their murders uh, than, yeah. than rather than any civil lawsuit. And of course, you know, now it's evolved a little bit to say, I was watching, again, some of these documentaries to say, you know, the policy from when it started to what it is now has changed a little bit saying, will you, you know, if, if, if the, we believe that it has to do with a rape or a homicide or some other serious crime, you know, that they'll cooperate with law enforcement, kind of like how I don't need to get a warrant to uh, mm-hmm. track your cell phone. Like they'll cooperate with us under certain circumstances. They don't compel a warrant in every case. Um, but submitting submitting a sample like it's like it's a customer is uh, ingenious. And it's also, I don't know, it's like you said, they already, they already had the evidence in their possession. So all we're checking to see is, is if you have that. Uh, I don't, what, what I'd be curious to know is like, what was the exact chain? Was it, did his, th- did any of his three kids, you know, participate in 23andMe or Ancestry.com or was it uh, his family or do you know? I know they, it's, it kind of blows my mind the way they did it. So I've, <laughs> I've watched it and listened to it a couple of times. So I believe what, how they did it was that when they submitted the DNA, they, the way that these, the way that these uh, genealogists work essentially is they take your DNA sample and they try to match it up to anything anyone else that's in the database and partial, partial DNA hits, give them clues as to who you're related to and all this stuff. 
Um, and they can even track certain traits like eye color, things like that. I mean, it's, it's pretty, yeah. um, it's pretty cool actually, but they, they try to stick to the mother side because of the mitochondrial DNA and all that good stuff. And through that, that's how they, they realize that you are related to this person, this person, this person, and this person. D'Angelo's DNA, um, they had six, originally they had six people that they suspected. Um, right. But you, you can eliminate, you can eliminate certain suspects. Like was yes. this person living in California at this Correct. time? Does, does this Correct. person, you know, do they, you know, do we know anything about their vital statistics? Are they, do mm -hmm. they, do they resemble this person? You know, can, yes. can we account for them? Do they have an alibi? Things like that. And at that point, it's just basic police work. And those are the things that they basically boiled it down to when they had these six people. And then through process of elimination, um, I think the, the final thing that they checked that that led them to believe it was D'Angelo was eye color. Um, and also the location. Like you said, he was in California, obviously, for all those years. And they they realized, OK, we've got our guy. They essentially like followed him around, surveilled him, waited for him to dispose of some sort of DNA sample of his own. They, they, sw they swabbed his car door when he went inside Hobby Lobby of all things. <laughs> I think he also blew his nose and threw a tissue away or something like that. And they collected it. That, yeah. Yes. Um, but I, I like the Hobby Lobby story. Cause like yes. what kind of hobbies <laughs> does the golden state killer like, right? Like he likes stealing and raping and murdering. Hobby Lobby doesn't like have a kit for those sorts of things. So, you know, <laughs> what what are his side interests? You know, does he build model airplanes, macrame? Macrame. You know, I was going to say macrame. <laughs> yeah. Quilting, you know, decorative yes. floral arrangements. Or did, <laughs> did he just, was it just something that like you just really need that you can't get anywhere else? Did he just need like a hundred popsicle sticks for something? You know, like what the heck was going on that he was in Hobby I think Lobby? I think it was towards the beginning of a, of the year, so maybe he was hitting there like after the holiday sale. Oh, he's just he's just know? good. He's just good with money. Obviously, you know after yeah after Christmas, all the deals are in effect. They're trying to empty all the all the Christmas stuff out of the store. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, being a pensioner, I guess, and not making a whole lot of money off of his career as the Golden State Killer, I bet he would even when he was like, "Man, I can't believe I have to get discount Christmas decorations." If I had only stolen heaps of money out of all those burglaries I ever did, 120 times I could have stolen. Uh, I know. You know, vast amounts of cash and money. And now I have to get discount Christmas decorations like some some <laughs> some loser BTK slob, you know. He was he was an absolute loser anyway, but um that the, <laughs> I'm laughing at him walking through Hobby Lobby because he was also described as a as a moody curmudgeon and his neighbors didn't like him. So yeah. I'm just imagining was, him trying to be like Holly Jolly and he's like ah, yeah. like just ah, yelling humbug, at people. Yeah. Just, yes. Uh, he was also described as someone who was known to kind of fly off the handle if inconvenienced or, or out of control. That that sounds like him, um, to mm -hmm. be honest. I could I could completely believe that. Yes, he was he was a strange guy, and his coworkers at at both police departments described him as like not knowing what personal space was. He took everything way too serious. Like he was not one of the guys. You know what I mean? He was weird. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting too about him trying to fit into society is i see here he was married in 1973 so before all this began he was married 
So, you know, maybe his law enforcement career covered for him being out in the middle of the night and raping people all the time. Mm-hmm. But he was married from the, to the same woman from 1973 to 2019. Obviously, she divorced him after he was arrested and identified as the Golden State Killer, which she's got to be a victim too. you know, to think about how painfully embarrassed she must be. And not only that, but if this guy is what we think he is, there's no way that she enjoyed being married to him for those 50 years. I mean, that had to be whole just terrible hell for her as well. They were separated for a long time. I think they uh, legally separated in 91 and they just never divorced. Um, another, well, yeah. Another thing that um, I forgot to mention that he would do, I, I know we said we're kind of jumping all over the place, but I don't want to forget this. Um, I know I said he fell off the map until he was apprehended, but in the nineties he would, <laughs> he would call, previous victims and yeah. tell them that he was going to come kill them and stuff and, and taunt them. And, and he would, he would call up people. Again. He would call up victims that he had known. There was one victim in particular victim 24. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, you said before that he was, he mum, he was always mumbling and he mumbled once something about how he was angry with Bonnie. I wonder if he truly did fixate on these people. And, you know, at first when he was starting the rapes, he was living out his rage against Bonnie or others. And then later he would have a victim that he would remember particularly and then contact them and call them. There's, there's one phone call that's easy for you to find if you listen to it, but he's uh, calling up and he's being a creep and I'm not trying to make light of it because it's truly terrifying, but he goes, you know, I'm going to kill you, kill you, bitch, bitch, you fucking whore. I'm going to kill you. You're laughing. I don't know why. I don't think that you would like to get a phone call like this, particularly from you know someone what? who had raped you, Kendra. That's awful. Do you know why I'm laughing, John? Probably because I'm not good at, at like impersonating the Golden because, State Killer. Because I'm hearing you say those words, and it's funny coming yeah, from because I would never be that way. Right. It's just... <laughs> Because, like, my idea of, like, if I'm mad about something, like, I'm just going to go home and cry and read a good book <laughs> and drink a, a whole big glass of whole milk and and then go to sleep at eight. Hearing you, know, you do. hearing you say you're fucking whore made me laugh a lot. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why I was laughing. I'm not laughing at the victims. I don't normally talk that way. That's um, for sure. <laughs> well, D'Angelo was, like we were saying, he was... Uh, that tissue and the, I'm sure the Hobby Lobby incident helped too, John. Um, they were able to identify him, match him with DNA, and he was arrested for a lot of things. All of the things that he did. <laughs> um, can, you just be, can you just imagine going to get this guy who's 79 and you're like, my God, he's like, he was the, he was like my, my father's generation's most dangerous and terrible man. And now it's just this doddering old nothing, you know, reduced to this fat old drooling waste of a nothing guy you know what no no i resent that because uh that was something that i wanted to talk about because he's a big dumb dumb idiot and he's a loser and he immediately upon entering into the courtroom or any any sort of accountability he has to put on this act of like I'm just an old man. What? I can't hear you. Ugh. He's even got like the face, you know, like the, the, I don't know, not making fun of old people. I'm making fun of him. Um, a little bit of both. Yeah. And he, <laughs> dumb. Um, <laughs> one of the things that was said was that the week before he was arrested, he was 
very active. He was a motor. He would ride his motorcycle. Um, he was walking around just fine, just a normal person. And then his first appearance in court, he's in a wheelchair and he like, he's like, oh, yes, sir, to the judge. And it's really gross because they also have footage of him in his jail cell, like climbing up on the walls and like doing like he's clearly putting on an act to get some sort of sympathy. And that really grosses me out because um, some of the things that (laughs) you read it to me earlier before we started filming um, a letter that he'd written. About I'm happy how to. Just, I'm happy to read that if you want. I mean, please. He, he, he also has. I wanted to mention this too, uh, and I wanted to run this past you as a law enforcement officer. This hasn't been confirmed, so like we're gonna go into some speculation territory here. If you'll go with me, yay! That's my favorite. Um, he. <laughs> there was a letter that got posted uh, to the Sacramento Bee, which is a newspaper in Sacramento. Bee Master. Yes, that's also a deep reference. Anyway, there was a poem sent to the Sacramento Bee, and it was a terrible fucking poem. <laughs> Aren't they always? Apparently, they are. <laughs> so that's what I'm getting at. So with the okay. BTK's terrible poem, do you think that we could possibly? And I'm not one for creating extra legislation where we shouldn't. I will, but I'm okay with it creating it where we should. Teachers, as mandatory reporters, if you're an English teacher. And you got a student who's giving you just fucking awful poems. I don't care if they're creepy or anything. They're just terrible. Should that student go on to a serial killer watch list? Like how we have a terrorist <laughs> watch list now? You know how like the Homeland mm-hmm. Security maintains a database of people who are just under surveillance or suspected of things? Would you would you would you like to, as a police officer, you know, run someone's driver's license and then you get a you get a hit? from the state of Florida. You're like, just so you know, this person submitted a terrible poem in sixth grade. You know, you should use caution. (laughs) That sounds very silly. Um, I I think that the, um, I mean, me as, as Kendra, yeah, that would be great. Right. That would, that would negate a lot of crime and help people have a crystal ball into these types of folks. I, I worry but... though because I I may have written a bad poem in the past, <laughs> you know, because we had a poetry unit in class and I didn't want to do it, but I didn't want a zero, so I was forced to like, you know, in some ways I violated my own Fifth Amendment. I I created, you know, I, you know, I, <laughs> I basically put evidence out there that that com- was it was incriminating. I was a, that I was compelled to do this by the state. I was forced to make this god awful poem. And I, I don't want it to be, you know, at some point that like, you know, I'm in some sentencing for something else, you know, and I don't want to commit a crime or I definitely really don't want to be caught even more than not committing a crime. Um, I don't want to be in sentencing and just be like, Your Honor, I would like a poem from 1995 read into the record because, like, oh, geez, you know, that's what it's going to get really bad for me. And the judge is going to be like, well, obviously you're a psychopath. And, uh, you know, all this littering you've been doing is a part of a pattern of escalation that all started in 95 with this poem about, uh, you know, how turtles are unfair or something. I don't know. And it's just okay. I, don't, I don't want that to be used against me. So, um, well, just to, to me, this is this is almost as big of a philosophical question of the DNA thing. Like, how do you balance your individual rights to privacy 
with the compelling interest that the that the government and the people have of apprehending criminals. So it's like I don't want my sister putting essentially our genes into this database, even though it could be used to find some third cousin of mine who is raping people over the earth. I also don't want to like have some poem that I was forced to make when I was in fifth grade being used to suggest that I'm some sort of horrible monster. You know, where, you know, both issues. Very murky. They're they're basically the same thing. They're morally, morally just as weighty. Either one is the other. So to your point, confounding. Yeah. (laughs) To your point, just to clarify, um, teachers are mandatory reporters uh, and I know we're, we're making light, but in all seriousness, um, it's very difficult for the process of, hey, this kid is making disturbing content to let's get them some help. That's a very long process. Yeah, because, that's something that actually that, that was uh, an issue in a case in Michigan not that long ago. Go ahead. Well, because ultimately, you know, parents have, you know, the rights of the ch- of a child belong to the parents and um, to take rights away from parents in order for the state to intervene. There's a lot that has to happen before that occurs. And some people would say that it's too difficult. I think that it's just difficult enough because if you um, start messing with that, it's going to be, there's going to be like, where's the line? Kind of like the conversation we had with the um, absolute property rights. You either yeah. do or you don't. Um, and yes, I do think that children should be taken away from, from abusive homes. Um, but I think that it should be a hard process to get to that point because there are, I personally have seen a lot of cases where a teacher, out of the goodness of their heart, is concerned um, about a child. And they call DCF here, it's DCF. To do an, they report and they they come out and do an investigation and the parents are not abusive at all. The child is healthy. The child's happy. Everything's fine. It's just that the teacher doesn't think that what the child is doing is appropriate or um, it goes against their personal values. And that's all it is. And to me, that's like an abuse of you shouldn't be reporting stuff like that. You should only be reporting abuse. Now, if if you're, if the child is a um, repeated offender of terrible poems and haikus, then, I mean, that's a different story. I think we should lock them all up. Um, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I get you. I mean, but uh, I, it's, it's, it's difficult with, with mandatory reporters, but I mm-hmm. think the case I was mentioning was the one in Oxford where, you know, this kid had been making all these uh, statements and drawing all these things and then the you know the guidance counselor is getting the parents involved and the parents handled it so badly that they ended up getting charges as well which i don't think of i don't think that case is over with but um i'm obviously just joking about the poetry it's just to me yes. to me it's just just incredible that these guys fancy <laughs> themselves as, as poets i'd be on the same uh list as you john because i in sixth grade we had to write a paper about what we wanted to be when we grew up and I wanted to be a medical examiner. I wanted to be a medical examiner for most of my childhood and up until I graduated high school. Um, and I've, I've mentioned this before on Patreon that I, I attended a very strict private 
um, Southern Baptist school and they were not happy about it. So I had to go meet with the, <laughs> the guidance counselor and my parents were called uh, because I wrote a paper about wanting to be a medical examiner. <laughs> oh. So I would be on the same list <laughs> as you. <laughs> I always played it pretty confidentially when I was a kid. I never, I never actually revealed anything about myself. I remember in ninth grade, I had to tell a story about some great memory. I had uh, summertime memory. And uh, the one that I submitted, I just completely made up. It's totally fake. I'm like, I'm not telling you personal details about myself to get to get this grade. So I just made up a story. Oh, I've, always been, I've always been. I've always been a Ted Kaczynski ish, uh, Ted Kaczynski ish, <laughs> you know, a paranoid uh, person who doesn't like uh, people knowing anything about me. So that started at a yeah, young age. That's great. Where will it end up, though? Where will I be in ten years? Will you be trying to scrub these videos from the internet? I don't know. Did you want me to read that? Uh, <laughs> yes. His thing. So this, this is this is sincere. Try not to laugh. Okay. So at one point during this investigation, he he dropped or they found three documents they believed to have been uh, in possession of the Golden State Killer. Three things that he lost somewhere along the way. The first one was a regular a regular essay or treatise on the life and activities of General George Armstrong Custer, formerly of the Seventh Cavalry United States Army, who lost his life at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Not much there to make any any kind of identification of him out of. There was also a uh, a map that uh, people make different things out of this map. A lot of people say that it's intricate and detailed, and uh, other people say that it's sort of crude. I think it's uh, if you look at the map online, or if you come across it when you're doing your own uh, Golden State Killer, you know, research, or if you watch a documentary, to me it looks like he had seen a detailed map at one point. And he'd seen certain details that you find on a map, whether that's, you know, uh, you know, a house isn't just a square that, you know, a house is actually depicted as the shape of the house or um, contour lines showing how the elevation changes from where the road is to where a lake is, locations of trees, uh, road dividers, other things like this. So it's a so it's a it's a complicated map in that it's not a map that you would use to just show someone where to go. But I don't really think it's a good map in terms of like being able to plan a community from it. So I think at some point he had seen a complicated map and he wanted to create a fantasy map of where he would go to his own personal rape land. And he would have you know, places that he could go and run around and houses he could hit. And I think for him, it was just uh, a pastime, you know, that he made this map and you know, something for him to enjoy. But on the back of that, by the way, it had many uh, sinister things. And it said the word punishment across it, which, of course, is very... Uh, <laughs> It's a very scourging word um, of all words. Not not a great word to find on the back of a, a serial rapist map. <laughs> no, uh, the map the map incidentally cannot be traced to it being any real any real place. There's some documentaries that suggest, well, you know, this depicts the area in which so and so was was raped, but it doesn't. It obviously isn't a, a realistic depiction of any specific area. That's you know, for all its detail, it's not it's not a real place. But anyway, the third one. Their document that was found, and this is all in handwriting on Spiral Bound Notebook, was an essay, I'm guessing, that he was compelled to write, uh, possibly about uh, what a certain word makes him think, or if he had to write about a certain word, or in this case, it's a feeling. But I'll just go ahead and read it. And as I said, this this is sincere to him. I think it opens the door a little bit to uh, a narcissist self-pity and not someone who feels any empathy. The words I'm about to read are from a man who would rape many women in the company of uh, men who were held powerless. He would rape women while their children laid next to them in their beds. So we'll laugh a little bit, but we'll also remember what a deranged asshole this guy is. <clears throat> Quote, 
Bad is the word. The word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year, the last and worst year of elementary. Mad is the word that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointments that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teacher, such as a field trip that was planned and then canceled. By the way, he misspells several words here. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad and made me build a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me was writing sentences. Those awful sentences that my teacher teacher made me write. Hours and hours I'd sit and write 50, 100, 150 sentence day. And night I write those dreadful paragraphs, which embarrassed me. And more important, it made me ashamed of myself, which in turn, deep down inside me, and deep down inside made me realize that writing a sentence wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones ached, until my hand felt every horrid pain it ever had. And as I wrote, I got madder and madder until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because I was mad. I cried for myself, a kid who kept on having to write those damn sentences. My angriness from sixth grade will scar my memory for life, and I will be ashamed of my sixth grade year forever. Holy fuck, people. Can you believe that this is something that this guy is mad about? He's mad that he had to do schoolwork in sixth grade and that field trips were planned and then canceled. You know, I can tell you this. I remember probably the first time ever being blind with rage was about about 1996 for me. That's when I was sixth grade. I remember once being so mad at my family. I thought I was going to jump out my second story window and run away. Like that's the kind of insane hormonal reactions you have when you're that age. You get really mad. And part of it is because your your brain and your everything in your body is a soup of brand new chemicals that you don't know how to handle. Yeah. But yeah. as an adult, I don't look back on those days in 1996 when I was in sixth grade and think, you know, I really was justified. I really was wronged. How dare they make me write sentences? How dare they make me do all the things? How dare my mother have me do the dishes? How dare I be forced to do these things? You really have to be a truly stunted person. You have to, you have to be in a, in a mental and emotional arrested development where you just never move on from the bullshit drama queen overwrought stuff that happens to you when you're when you're a boy and you're in sixth grade you know for girls i know that it happens at a younger age for boys that's for me that's just when i when i would all of a sudden was dealing with very very strong emotions but i grew up and to think about this guy going on to victimize so many people and it's so many more than just 51 rapes as we said it's all the families yeah. of all those people raped it's all the people the families of those uh, 13 murdered the, the th 120 or more uh, households and all the people in it where they felt victimized from coming home and finding someone having gone through their stuff, this attempted kidnapping girl and all the stuff that we never know about. He has nothing but self-pity for himself or some bullshit thing that he had to go through long ago that he never got over. But it never occurs to him the kind of true trauma and terrible 
pain that he's inflicting on others. He's completely dead to other people. He only cares about himself. He only cares about stating his own needs to victimize other people. And reading that is his hilarious, but it truly makes me disgusted because that's just, it's someone who's barely human and it's someone I have no pity for. Kendra. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. He clearly is I the only word that I can think of is a loser. Like he's just a loser who never Petulant. really Petulant Yeah. Loser. The fact that he's so upset about <laughs> writing sentences and not going on field trips is such a spoiled entitled like narcissistic thing to be upset about and I don't know when he wrote this. I don't know if, if it was some sort of lame ass attempt to create a narrative in case he ever got caught, but what a, f what a dumb fucking idiotic thing to say that you're mad about, especially like you said, when um, he was the one inflicting real trauma and real um, pain upon people and did not care. In fact, took a lot of pleasure in it. Like, I mean, that's not a surprise. Most of these people do. That's the reason why they do it. But, and also it's kind of like, you that's what you resort to there's a lot of there's a lot of serial killers and and criminals who they'll just straight up lie and say they were abused or make up a story but like very common no, i would i would hear that a lot in prison they're like man you don't know what i went through you don't know the yeah. childhood i had i'd be like you don't know the childhood i have and yet mm -hmm. i'm on this side of the cell like you can't just say you don't know the childhood i had and write it off and then i'm gonna walk away thinking well yeah everything was great for me as a kid which is why i'm and the way you are at a certain point you take you take responsibility, responsibility for who you are. At mm -hmm. my age, I can't blame shit on my family anymore. Yeah, I had a bad childhood growing up. I had bad parents. But nothing that goes on with me now, I don't trace back to them. Like, yeah, there's there's maybe certain personality defects or flaws or things that, you know, maybe had their origins when I was young. But you know what? Everything that happens to me now is because of me. And that's mm -hmm. called, called being an adult. And it's called just being well-adjusted. And this is me of all people claiming to be well-adjusted. <laughs> It's just pathetic that they, they throw this out there. And to them, it's a cheap, easy excuse. And the reason they do that is because they've had so many counselors over their lives who've tried to resolve them of that personal responsibility saying, well, you know, you went through so much as a kid, you know, it's a miracle that, you know, you're even, you're even still alive, you know, and to them that writes some sort of, some sort of check that, you know, it's everyone else's fault for everything that they've done. Yeah, that's, that's, we could get on a tangent about that. The self, the self accountability is what, I think separates people. Like you said, I'm on this side and you're on that side. You don't, a lot of people go through, everyone has trauma. Every single person on this earth has some sort of trauma, unless you've been living in a bubble. Um, using that is not as an excuse for behavior and refusal to take accountability for your own actions is you are a problem now. Everyone's got issues, but the fact that he didn't even try to lie and say it was something like that is what makes me laugh because it just shows me how absolutely entitled and idiotic he really was and insecure and all the other words that we could use to describe someone like that. It's, yeah. it's laughable. It's it truly word. is. He, he's ridiculous. And uh, I admit I give him a little bit more credit and credulity as a serious person than I do BTK, but it's kind of funny how when you peel down the layers underneath and when you find out what really motivates these people as horrible as they are and as dangerous as they are, yeah. you know, that's, that it's stupid, petty bullshit like that, that most of us have gotten over in our lives. And, uh, 
they're just not able to move on from that. Mm-hmm. I can do a couple of ad reads before we take out the end of the show. Let me just say, real, let me just say what, how it completely came to a close real quick. Oh, good. I, he- I, if they, if they want closure, <laughs> I guess. So, um, Joseph D'Angelo took a, a plea deal in which he pled guilty to the murders. As you stated earlier, he admitted to the rapes. Um, he wasn't convicted of them, but he was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And like I said, he, he pled guilty, so he didn't go to trial. And that is that. He's in prison. So until he dies, which should be soon because he's pretty old already. Although someone like him, he'll probably live till he's 105. Because that's just how it works. I completely agree. Uh, He'll probably just hang on forever. (laughs) But uh, the victims and all this, you know, they do, they do get to finally know the name of their attacker and Mm -hmm. the killer of their family. So that's good. You know, not all of these cases uh, get that. But uh, this is one of the big, one of the first big ones solved by DNA. So it's always going to be interesting. It's always going to be a case study for criminologists and people in school and podcasts and things like that. I think the main reason why it's hard to find a lot of stuff about how he was taken down was because it's not very dramatic. You know, they didn't, they didn't have to face off like BTK or whatever. It was just like, yeah, essentially, essentially the, you know, they got a, a, an email that was system generated saying the the killer is this guy. And they're just like, all right, well, just print that out and I'll staple it to this warrant. I guess we'll go get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go get the 70 year old man. (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's form a perimeter first, you know, in case he tries to roll away in his wheelchair. Anyway, oh uh, folks, this show is brought to you by Ghostbed. Ghostbed is a uh, wonderful company that seeks to bring out uh, mattresses to the entire world at a cheaper uh, way, at a cheaper rate, so that they can be available to everyone. These are wonderful products. They help you sleep all the way through the night. They have wonderful technology, proprietary technology that cools you as you sleep all throughout the night. You can get ghost bed pillows, get ghost bed sheets. You can also go to their website. You can get his uh, mattresses and their adjustable frame that will help you sleep and be comfortable all the way through the night. Uh, ghost bed is the only bed that's made exclusively in USA. 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 I think uh, I think we need to get it. We're just so bad at it. You you're pausing too long, and then I get thrown off. All right, it's the only mattress made in the good old USA. 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 I think more energy helps, but okay. yeah, we'll we'll do it one more I'll time after this. But then that's, channel that's my the officer end. Randy. Just channel officer Randy. Okay. If you go to the website, use the offer code Wolfpack. You get a discount of up to forty percent on whatever you find there. If you do go to the website, and you find a better deal because it is the holiday season, folks. Go ahead and go with whatever you see on the website. But when you're checking out, put in the comments failure stop. Put in there Wolfpack. Let them know that. Uh, here, everybody at uh, Failure Stop sent you. That way they can keep supporting uh, us as sponsors. We can keep going as podcasters. If you like this entertainment, you want to support the show, that's a great way to do that. You can also, uh, if you're on Instagram, uh, you can follow uh, Failure to Stop, uh, true crime drama with an underscore in there somewhere. I'm difficult to look at pictures. You can follow us. We'll put out information about the cases and other things going on. If you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts on Spotify, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and review. We've got a robust YouTube show also. If you're watching us on YouTube, then you already know that. Make sure you hit like. Make sure you hit subscribe. Hit the little notification bell. We have tons of content coming out all week long. Uh, You can always catch it on YouTube or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We also want to thank Factor Meals. If you go to Factor Meals and use the uh, code, I uh, believe it's, what is it, Wolfpack50, you can get 50% off. 
folks, I know that one of our fans, at least for sure, and at least two, maybe I know that Carly and Dana both really like using uh, factor meals. They have meals delivered right to their house, a little reverse trick or treat where they have nutritious meals brought right to them. They don't have to go out into the insane city and put up with people acting uh, almost as psychotic as J Joseph James D'Angelo when you go to the <laughs> grocery store, standing there thinking about how their favorite butter is out of stock and what are they going to do now is for hours they stand at the butter. These are true stories from the grocery store. And uh, you'd think people would just go to the store and buy the same, same damn thing every week. But no, they all have to sit there and think about it while I stand there and wait. And I'm bigger than them, and I don't know why they don't feel like they need to get the hell out of my way. Like they say that big people have a presence about them, and the people try to get no, they, they just want to fight with me because I'm bigger. I don't know why everyone there has like a little man syndrome in a grocery store, but you can get past all that just by going to Factor Meals. They have over 300 different options. You can go on there. This is all chef prepared, it's all delicious. You can find something that's delicious and good for you if you're doing a specific diet, whether that's keto or you're doing something that's really protein heavy. Uh, whatever it is you want to do, you can have it brought right to your house. It arrives at your house in a nice box. It's in there packed in ice. Nothing is frozen. It's just refrigerated. You throw it in the fridge. You have it there all week. When you're ready to eat, you pull it out, put it in the microwave for two minutes. It comes out smelling delicious. If you want to cook it conventionally, you can do that for yourself. You can have a nice little meal. You can take yourself on a nice little date for one because you're all by yourself because you just went through all this eating with family for Thanksgiving and you realize it's kind of overrated. So just have it all for yourself. Go over there. Use Wolfpack 50. Tell them that Fair just stop sent you. They can get you a discount to start up, and we appreciate it. The more uh, factor meals that we could sell right now would be really important, really appreciated, really important. We're going into a critical phase of marketing in the year. This is fourth quarter. This is when everyone really spends money so that they can meet their their sales goals that they have for themselves. Certainly, Factor Meal has has goals that they want to reach. Do that through us. Do it through Failure to Stop, so that when first quarter comes around, they can remember to invest in Failure to Stop. Give us some money to continue to sponsor them. That helps helps keep the podcast afloat. If you don't know, this is a business. As I've said many many times before, I do not want to do this for free. At that point, <laughs> I would become a slave. So, if you are anti-slavery, please support our sponsors. Uh, we appreciate everybody out there in the Wolfpack supporting us. Here at Failure Stop, we get a whole bunch of shows. Starts on um, Sunday night. It's kind of a side project of Eric Tanzi and uh, Anthony Ramondi. They uh, do conservative. Uh, conservative and is his handle, but they do conspiracy type stuff, government cover up stuff. They cover that. That's kind of its own show. You can look for that. That's called Night Shift Top Secret Information. On Monday, Eric and Jay Darrell White break down pop culture news. Uh, I think they just covered Will Smith. Uh, that's, that's the kind of stuff they're going to talk about, but they're going to do it uh, from a comic point of view and a, often a police perspective. Tuesday, we'll be back here next week for another True Crime Tuesday. On Wednesday, it's all the news you need with Deadleg. He's going to break that all down for you. On Thursday, we're kind of tooling up a new show. It's right now we're in the prototype phase. Uh, I believe that's me and Jason Kiefer, although it's still a fluid situation. We're going to be talking about sports. So in many ways, it's going to be a lot like what you get on Wednesday, you know, uh, and in Tuesday, or excuse me, on Monday, where you get some pop culture news, you get some news of what's going on, but it's going to be a little more sports centric. Uh, but most of all, our goal is to entertain you and inform you. If you're a first responder, if you're a friend, just sports is going to be something we talk about because we think that you might like sports. I think it's entirely possible. On Friday, we got Eric. He's going to break down all the stories from the thin blue line, all the big cases going on. He's going to talk about it from a police officer's perspective. Uh, Tyler's going to be there as well to join him. It's always a big show on Friday. We uh, always look forward to that. But you can catch us here every week. And uh, thanks for watching. We appreciate you supporting us. Uh, we're looking forward to an exciting new year here at Failure Stop. Thanks for everything, Kendra. Uh, guns up, giddy up. Good night, America. Stay safe.
And whatever you do, don't get yourself true crimed. All right. Good Goodbye. Night. Bye. <laughs>